Welcome to the Check Your Head Mental Health for Musicians podcast. This is the podcast where notable musicians come and share their mental health stories, their experiences, and most importantly, their solutions for getting through some of the toughest challenges in their lives. I'm Mari Fong, a music journalist and life coach for musicians, and I'm your host. Uh, today, I'm really excited because I have Gilby Clark here on the podcast. And Gilby is a singer-songwriter, a record producer, but first kind of got on the musical map when he joined the Usual Illusion Tour for Guns N' Roses when Izzy Stradlin, their original guitarist, suddenly quit. And Gilby was called in to uh, play guitar on one of the longest-running tours in history. Uh, Usual Illusion Tour was almost three years. And on top of that, Gilby was kind of in the middle of all the debauchery that was going on. Uh, other members of the band were Axl Rose, Slash, uh, Duff McKagan, and uh, Matt Sorum. So uh, this was a tour that sort of was known for uh, all of the drama and craziness that was going on. So uh, Gilby's going to share some uh, really good stories. Uh, after that, he did forge a solo career. He's uh, released seven solo albums, and he's also worked with uh, great bands throughout the decades, including Heart, uh, MC5, uh, Slash's Snake Pit, and he also formed his own supergroup called Rockstar Supernova with Jason Newstead of Metallica and drummer Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. So Gilby has had plenty of ups and downs during his career, and he talks about uh, the transitions from different bands and different bandmates, and also about the importance of having an advocate, uh, somebody on your side that's going to be open and honest with you, and really who honestly wants to look over you. And um, for Gilby, it was his wife, Daniela, who really stood by his side. Uh, they've been together for 39 years uh, through all of this, and uh, she's helped him through um, motorcycle accidents and uh, drug issues, um, and they really have stayed together, uh, which is a feat in itself, uh, especially within the music industry. So... After the interview with Gilby, I'm going to be speaking with Karen Clark, who is a psychotherapist who specializes in something called DBT. And DBT stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And this is a solution that can be used to improve your relationships, um, relationships with others, relationships with yourself, uh, and she's going to explain about this therapy that's gotten more attention because Lady Gaga mentions it in her interview with Oprah Winfrey just this month, January of 2020, and how it's helped her mental health and has improved her relationships, uh, you know, moving forward with her life. So uh, that's going to be a really interesting interview. But let's start with part one of Gilby Clark. Uh, part two will be coming soon as Gilby talks about the one artist that we lost to addiction that really shook him to the core. The most surprising 
artist that we lost recently was Prince. That was the, mo- the one that surprised me the most. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, you always think that guys like Prince have everything they need at their disposal. I was surprised too, and that one is still getting. It's still to, it hard still one gets to, to me, yeah. and I still remember the day. Yeah. Um, it was near my birthday, mm-hmm. and um, I I love Prince, and I've seen yeah. him three times, and yeah. each time he he just seemed like he's he was always on the top of his game. Yeah. He was he was like vibrant and dancing, yeah. and you know, an incredible guitarist. Oh yeah, and then to find out that he was on. Yeah, he had problems. Yeah, Yeah, he had had problems. Problems that were solvable, you you know? And that's the hard part about all this is, uh, you know, when you're in it, when you're, you know, I call it when you're in the fog, you don't, you don't think about, you know, the fixes are available to you. You're in the fog, you know, and uh-huh. you're just, you know, you're fucked up, you know, and it's hard to think that there's an, a, a real solution. And that's why you really do need someone around you. And I mean, I don't know anything about the Prince situation at all. Mm-hmm. We don't know if he had a best friend, if he had a wife or a girlfriend or, you know, someone close to him that could really speak to him and say, hey, man, no, this is not how we do it every day, you know, and stuff. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard when you're in the middle of that fog to realize, you know, how, how you know, how deep you are and how, how far down you are. And once again, you would think that someone like Prince had the resources. Well, the resources are out there, but you have to know about them and you have to, you know, get someone that's on the outside looking in going, Hey man, you know, this is available. I mean, I know you're Prince, but this is available. You know, it is fixable. Right, right. And, you know, um, on our website, it's shakeyourheadpodcast.com, mm-hmm. I have mental help for musicians, mm-hmm. for everyone. I have helpful apps. Mm-hmm. And even myself, as mm-hmm. I was putting the information down, there's so many clinics out there oh, yeah, yeah, that are yeah, free yeah, yeah. or low cost. Mm-hmm. And, but like uh, you said, knowing about them. Yeah, you know, yeah. Knowing what's available to someone. You know, in the, in the musician world, you know, not everybody has insurance, you know, so mm-hmm. they, there's that fear of can I afford it? And, and you're right, those things are out there but it's so hard to even search for that help because i mean you know when you go up on google and you look that up you know there's you know three pages of ads (laughs) and you don't even know if you know they're trying to you're always trying to sell you something not you know help you with something so it's nice that you have that because that that i'm sure will help people decipher what's good and what's bad out there well thank you so Mm -hmm. much And today I am super excited because I have a rock god (laughs) in the studio, uh, Gilby Clark. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Gilby, thank you you so much for being here. I laugh a little when you say rock god. (laughs) Well, come on. You are. You're a rock god. Uh, But it's nice to hear that you're humble. Thank you. Um, Just for our listeners, Mm -hmm. a little back uh, story (laughs) on Gilby is that he kind of came into public fame Mm -hmm. Uh, when you were asked to join the Guns N' Roses tour, yep. uh, the what is it? Use Your Illusion? Use Your Illusion, yeah. They had just, uh, I joined the band right as the Use Your Illusion records were coming out. And uh, they had already started the tour, but they hadn't officially started the tour. And Izzy, you know, the original guitar player, uh, left the band. So they needed someone. And I got the call and... Boom, I got the gig, and that was on to that two-and-a-half-year-long tour. 
Yeah, and that was like one of the longest tours in history. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was close to, I think, in total three years. Yeah, and you yeah, were on the yeah. majority of that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only missed like a first couple months of it, and it was, uh, it was long. <laughs> it was long. <laughs> people, people got married and divorced all in the tour. You know. <laughs> well, I'm sure there was a lots of high drama. Yeah. And yeah. Um, lots of stories that you can yeah. always go back to. Yeah. But I wanted to uh, go back to when you first came to Los Angeles. Because mm-hmm. you came um, mm-hmm. from Cleveland yep. at 17 years old, yeah. which is, you know, had your rock star dreams. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you kind of really got into the music business fairly quickly. Yeah, well, I actually moved with my mother. My parents had gotten divorced in Cleveland, and my mother just thought it would be a better life uh, living in California than in Ohio at that time. Uh, I was getting into trouble, you know, I was, mm-hmm. you know, that young punk kid and I was, I was just getting into a lot of trouble and she thought a change of scenery would be good for the family. We had already had some family already out here. So my brother my sister and I, my mother moved, they flew, but I drove out, you know, and, yeah. uh, it, when I got here to California from Cleveland, it, uh, it was a very drastic change. You know, even the simple things of walking down the street, you run into someone and they go, hey, how you doing? It's like, how you doing? Fuck you. You don't know me. Like it was, (laughs) it was just a different world than Ohio, you know, Ohio's not New York, you know, but it's got a little sarcastic tone to it. So just the friendliness of, uh, you know, people in Los Angeles, uh, you know, the girls were prettier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, everything. It was just different for me. But one of my ways of adapting was music. You know, I had already started playing guitar in Cleveland. Um, so when I got to California, the first thing I did was I put a band together, like guys I had met uh, just locally. And we started playing shows. Uh, we actually just like played like school dances. We played parties. We played a couple shows in Hollywood. And for us, Hollywood was our dream, was to get to Hollywood and play shows at the Starwood and the Troubadour. And that's really all we were thinking about at that time. So being in a band for me really helped me adapt, you know, to California, you know, meeting people, meeting like-minded people. And uh, it was just, uh, it was, for me, it was, it was, it was perfect at that point, you know, because I could have easily gone the wrong way. And what was the wrong way? I'm really curious. <laughs> well, the wrong way. So we're talking a long time ago and drugs were prevalent, you know, and and I was already pretty bad. But, you know, also, you know, I, I didn't come from money. My parents didn't have very much money, very, very much middle class. You know, mm-hmm. the better drugs, you had to have money to have the better drugs, you know, or be a really good thief, you know. So uh, I didn't really have money for the good drugs and stuff like that. So it was just, you know. You can go one of two ways. If you didn't have something to do, like I said, have a band and rehearsals and doing shows and something to look forward to, you could easily be sitting around smoking pot, doing blow and and worse, and, you know, like I said, going in the wrong direction. So it, music really, really helped me steer me in a better direction. Not saying that all that wasn't involved, but right. that could have been a full-time job for me doing drugs and hanging out with my friends. Yeah. Well, the thing, though, is that, you know, you were a working musician. Yep. And then you were kind of thrown into the whole Guns N' Roses thing. Mm-hmm. And I heard that you had to learn 50 songs in a week. <laughs> in a week, yeah, which that's is, true. Which is really, I mean, mm-hmm. talk about transition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're this kid that comes from Ohio, mm-hmm. and now you're, you've gone from 
you know, to the stratosphere as yeah, far yeah, as public yeah. fame. Yeah. I mean, how did you deal with that? <laughs> well, first of all, by the time uh, I got the Guns N' Roses gig, you know, I had already actually been around a little bit. I mean, though I was young, you know, I had already was in a band that had a major label record deal. I've already done tours, I've done arena tours, I've done club tours, theater tours. So I did have some experience behind me. But nothing can really get you ready for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was out there, just mm-hmm. out there. You know, it was... Um, uh, it was just kind of like everything we ever read about, like from Led Zeppelin, The Who, and the Rolling Stones, like, you know, the parties and, and uh, you know, backstage and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was all that stuff. I mean, it was guys, young guys, just really enjoying, you know, what the, the, the fruits of our labor, you know. But I, I had to learn 50 songs in a week and able to, to get the gig. You know, they needed a guitar player and they needed someone that not only could do the job, but that could adjust to everything around it, that could handle, you know, the fame, you know, the everything else that's going to get thrown at you. And, you know, there's, it's not just walking around and people recognizing you and stuff, you know, it's things like, you know, uh, doing interviews and people trying to get you to say things and, you know, trying to get, you know, you're the new guy, let's get mm-hmm. some information about Axel out of this guy. Oh. You know, so it took some, you know, I, you know, some learning on my part too of really, you know, figuring out what was going on around me and how to adapt to it and stuff. And number one, be in a new band, be a band member in the band, not just a hired guy, be, you know, be a guy right, that was in right. the band. So, you know, it, there's definitely a, a learning curve to it, but the guys were excited. Um, it was moving in the right direction. And also, this was all new for them, too, at this time. This is the first time they did their own headlining tour. Mm-hmm. So it was new to them. Even though it was new to me, it was new to them, too. They were still discovering who they were, what they were capable of. So it was just, um, you know, it was kind of good timing for everybody, I think, at that point. Okay. So what were some of the crazy good things? Because you, I mean, this is like the roller coaster of the oh, yeah. rock world, right? The mm-hmm. highs and the lows. Oh, yeah. What, what is something that you can remember that was just like off the charts as far as the fame part? What was offered to you? Um, what, was, what did you see and so forth? Well, I mean, there's so much we saw. I mean, um, you know, before the podcast started, we were just talking about Elton John. Uh, we, we had just got the, uh, the MTV... Video Vanguard Award, which is basically given to the artist of the year, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, the, they gave it to Guns N' Roses. We had just released the November Rain video, which I think even to this day is like the biggest video like on YouTube and stuff. And uh, so we got this award and we were going to do a performance. Now, we had already been out on the road for a year or so and still had like another year plus of touring to go. And it was in L.A. So, of course, you know, all of our friends were around in town and stuff. And we went down to do the MTV performance part. So what was crazy for me was uh, we didn't really do a sound check. We just kind of did like a quick little run through because it was a, a, it wasn't our stage. It was like a made up stage for the performance, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get there and I look over and I go, why are there two pianos? Like, I I just thought it'd be odd that Axel and Dizzy would be playing these big giant grand pianos at the front and center of the stage. And they go, Oh, well, Elton John's playing with us tonight. Oh, wow. And I go, oh, oh, Elton John is, huh? <laughs> Old Elton's playing with us. I mean, that was, that blew my mind. You know, I mean, that's right, Elton John. Right. I mean, you know, my, probably the first record I ever bought was Elton John, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, I never, obviously never met him before, but the fact that he was playing with us that night was incredible. Also, the fact that nobody told anybody, like I literally found out walking out on stage going, well, you know, 
oh, Elton's playing with us tonight. Anyway, he's the greatest guy in the world. He's friendly. He's funny. And the fact that we didn't sound check or rehearse it, he literally played November Rain on the spot with us. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing for a musician. It's not an easy song. I mean, it's not like it's a dream theater song or something, but it's... Uh, it, it's not a standard verse, chorus, verse, chorus kind of song. You know, right. there's some intricate stuff. And man, Elton jammed and played piano with Guns N' Roses at the Video Awards. So that was uh, that was definitely one of those moments. Yeah, so just meeting a lot of really cool people, yes. people that you admired, yep. even playing with people that you admired. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, I heard that you... Uh, to to be on that tour, you had you listened to a, a cassette tape. Yes, that's and, true. <laughs> and, you, and you personally... Was it, did you just, uh, I mean, how did that get into you? You just listened <laughs> well, and then you first just of all, remembered? They, uh, the tour was already going when Izzy left the band. So we only had a week really to find a new guitar player. I mean, it's kind of like if I didn't do it, they were going to lose these dates, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Slash said, like I said, can't just give me the songs, you know, like what songs are you going to play in a set? Usually a headlining set for a, you know, a, a arena or a stadium bat is 25 songs. I go, just give me, you know, the set list you're going to play. He goes, we don't have a set list. And I go, what do you mean you don't have a set list? Everybody has a set list. He goes, no, Axel just kind of calls them out. So you got to be ready for, you know, Rocket Queen or Estranged. We don't know. He just kind of calls them out and that's how we play him. I go, so that that means I have to learn the whole catalog. He goes, yeah. And at that point, the Illusion Records literally came out like the week I joined the band. Mm-hmm. So that's a double record set, you know, that yeah. you know is brand new. I've never even heard these songs before. So yeah, I and, and like I said, I had a week and I sat there. I had a cassette player mm-hmm. and I turned the uh, pan thing to the left side, which is where Izzy's guitar was. And I sat there and learned, you know, 50 Guns N' Roses songs in a week. And I wanted to go out there with no cheat sheets, nothing. You know, I wanted to be able to play those songs the way Slash played them, you know, the way Duff played them. I didn't want to be looking down. You know, I wanted right. to be a part of it. That was my goal. But the song that really, uh, you know, kind of got to me was Estranged. Okay. I, it's a long ballad kind of song. I, obviously, I never heard it before. And it just was kind of not a standard arrangement. It comes up, it goes down, back and forth, and parts are four bars, and then there's 12 bars. And so I called Dizzy, and I said, hey, Dizzy, I'm, I'm having a real hard time with the strange, man. Can, can you and I, like, sit down and just kind of run, run it through with me? Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, hey, I just got the new music books with everything. And he handed me the music book, and I go, you mean there's music books? <laughs> So I've been sitting with my ear to a friggin' headphone and cassette player for a week, and there's a music book? I go, you know how much easier this would have been for me to just read the chord charts than having to sit there and learn all this? So anyway, that was, uh, to me, it was just kind of funny. But of course, it was at the end, after I had already learned everything, and I just had one more to go, and I'm looking at the music books, and I never even thought of the fact that there were music books to this stuff. That is why you're a rock god. <laughs> I'm telling you. I, I can't imagine doing yeah, that. Yeah. So, Well, nowadays there's YouTube. You can just go on YouTube and somebody's <laughs> already learned the song, but back then they didn't. Okay, so you talked about some of the crazy good things that happened, you know, yeah. meeting some of the people um, and other bands, I'm sure, as you mm-hmm. were you know, going through, through this tour. But um, there's also some crazy bad stuff that oh, yeah. happens, yeah. right? People may be um, getting too much into... Mm-hmm. Uh, the fame or or the 
drugs and the <laughs> rock and roll and yeah. all of that. Yeah. What were some of the things on the flip side that you experienced? Well, I think the flip side really, um, for, uh, there's a couple of things. So first of all, Oddly enough, it really was a ban. Being that we were together for, like I said, on the road for so long, we were really tight. You know, like when we got to, you know, say uh, Milan, Italy, we really had one floor of the hotel that the band guys pretty much were on. And our doors were open and we'd hang out and sleep in each other's rooms, you know, because he'd hang out all night. Mm -hmm. So the band was pretty close. Like we always hung out together. If we weren't playing a show and we had two or three days off, you know, we'd go to a movie together. We'd go to the bars together. We'd go see bands together. Axel was separate. You know, he kind of had like the presidential suite at the top mm -hmm. and he kind of was in his own world. But the key guys like myself... Uh, Matt, Duff, Slash, and Dizzy, we really spent a lot of a, a lot of time together. So one of the hard things about that was, you know, every city you go to, there's hangers-on. You yeah. know, there are people that want to get in the circle, whether they came from the promoter or they worked on the, the tour or whatever. You always had these temporary people that came along. Sometimes they came around for a couple days, sometimes for a couple months and stuff. And, and they always... Um, you know, kind of we're trying to figure out their way in, you know, and they mm -hmm. knew some of our weaknesses and stuff. You know, some of the guys did blow cocaine, you know, some of the right. guys smoked weed, some of the guys drank too much, you know, so they kind of, you know, worked, you know, your, your, your angles and stuff. For me, when I got the Guns N' Roses tour, um, I was, I'm not going to say I was sober because I definitely was not sober, but yeah. I was kind of trying to get off the harder stuff, you know, yeah. like I, I, I was done with, with blow with Coke. I was just done, you know, but mm -hmm. so my goal was to get through that tour and not do any. Mm -hmm. And it was hard because there was a lot of it around. And like I said, the hangers on would bring this in and, and there was, you know, them trying to work their way in. It's like, you're looking at all this and you're remembering, wow, that was really fun. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, I liked it, you know, but I knew that it was one of those things that, uh, I don't want to say I could control, but, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't control it, you know. So okay. I just had to kind of just, you know, say, if, if if I'm doing blow, then I've lost the battle. Okay. So I kind of felt like things were going well for me. Like I said, first of all, just getting the gig in the band and everything else that came with it. You know, for me, it was the music was, was the important part. All that party stuff was icing, but it didn't really matter to me. Yeah. So that was hard. It was hard trying to adjust to that, you know, of... You know, I don't want to say reading people, but, you know, trying to figure out, you know, who's straight up and who's not, you know, yeah. that was hard. That was really hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I can definitely say that it took some time for me to, you know, figure that out. You know, I don't want to say I was gullible going in, but, you know, it was hard. You know, like I didn't, uh, there were so many different people around. I didn't know, you know, if somebody came up to me and said, oh man, I'm Duff's best friend. I've known him for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And Duff, and, you know, and, and he'll hang out with him all night. And then Duff comes in and he goes, oh, I think I met that guy once in, you know, 25 years ago. You know, like uh, people use those little, they'd exaggerate yeah. their connection to the band. Yeah. Did so, they get you angry or, or was that hurtful? No, it didn't make or? me angry. No, it didn't make me angry. It just kind of like, uh, it just made me realize, you know, what, uh -huh. what, uh, you know, we're all up against, you know, and just kind of realizing what's, you know, everybody wants something. And that's kind of what I figured out later with, with that band was, 
so everybody wanted something. Uh, I, it's funny. I used to call it the ladder, <laughs> it, the ladder of, you know, Axel's at the top and then there's Slash, you know, and, and right. I'm down at the bottom of the ladder. It's like they sometimes people will like work their way up to Gilby, to Duff, to Slash to get to Axel, you know. Interesting. And, and I used to I used to laugh about that, but it, it you know, it took me a little while to kind of figure out that ladder. You know? I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, well. You know, one thing that I read that uh, really thought uh, was great was that you have been with your wife uh-huh. for, what, like 39 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been married 28 years, mm-hmm. and we've been together for more than that. Yeah. <laughs> little, uh, you know, I don't remember all of it. But, uh, yeah, I had actually gotten married, and uh, literally the the a couple days after uh, one of my friends paid for our honeymoon to go to Hawaii because once again we didn't have any money back then right you know we lived in a little one bedroom apartment and one of my friends paid for our honeymoon and when I got back I literally got the phone call from Slash like a day after I got back really so we used to always laugh about that oh man you just got a gig in this great band there's gonna be groupies galore but you just got married <laughs> <laughs> but I and I said you know it wasn't oh you just got no my my wife was my best friend. Uh, she got to come out on the road with us all the time. You know, she was, uh, she understood the rules of the road and things like that, you know. So um, it wasn't like just me enjoying it. She got to enjoy it too. What are the rules of the road? Well, I mean, rules of the road of, you know, it, look, if a guy's single and he has two or three girlfriends, you know, mm-hmm. my wife doesn't have to talk between the two or three girlfriends. She just kind of, you know, keeps her lips sealed yeah you know or whatever you know did you stay out later and you said you stayed out you know did you do what you shouldn't have been doing you know just you know keep your mouth shut okay uh what stays in the tour bus yeah exactly what, it's what like vegas in what stays in happens in vegas stays in vegas same thing when you're out on the road what's on the road stays on the road okay yeah, yeah. but being gone for that amount of time yeah. she had the luxury to come on tour with you which yes. Because, you know, there's so many musicians that go on tour, they mm-hmm. may not have the luxury to do that. That's true. Or maybe even the that's, time. That's true. Yeah. Or financially, you know. We were a little lucky. You know, we, at that point, you know, we were traveling on our own plane and stuff like that. So it was, in all honesty, easier to bring her out, you know, for those kind of trips and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And you got to have to have a, a confident wife or a girlfriend. Yeah. To I mean, go that's, that's a conversation that. you have to have with her because she talks about that all the time. You know, it's like, you know, people, how could you let him out on the road with guns and roses? She goes, well, you know, I have to trust him, you know, and vice versa. My wife's a pretty girl. You know, she's in Los Angeles, you know, going to parties and stuff without me. I mean, you know, that, you know, it's, you do have to have some trust. Yes. I think that's really important, especially yeah. with, the image. And yeah. I think that's something that musicians have to battle with, too, yeah. is an image that may not even be who they are. Yeah, that's true. And then uh, a girlfriend or a husband or something is putting mm. that image on you yeah. when, you know, that's yeah. not who you are. So. I used to always say that the, the, the Guns N' Roses uh, image was infectious. There were a lot of people... Uh, it, it was funny. Like we would watch. Uh, my wife used to laugh about it. Like there'd be a couple girls that would like come out on the road and you know maybe hang out for like a week or so. And when they came out, there were this you know pretty girl from Alabama or whatever. You know, and next thing you know, at the that hanging out with us for weeks, she's in like leather shorts and stuff, and her hair is messy. It's like the 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 whole vibe of GNR was very infectious. It's kind of like it was a a license to be a fuck up. You know, it's like yeah. you. You, it was okay, you know, like I said, to, you know, do illegal things and, you know, get in trouble and stuff like that. It was almost expected of the band. 
And so people wanted to be around that. And, and it was always funny watching how people, you know, start drinking Jack Daniels like Slash did, you know, and, you know, trying to imitate that. But, um, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. Well, that's the other thing is is um, some musicians try to fit into that image because it's yeah. almost thrust upon them. Yeah. And fans are expecting that. So they might yeah. be handing them drugs. They might be handing them a drink. Well, absolutely. And so forth. Well, they think that that's what they want, you know, because they only get what's put out there, you know, with, with publicity and, and marketing and things like that. They're getting what's, and, you know, most of the time the band doesn't put that out there. We're reactionary. You know, stuff's out there and we're like, oh, that didn't happen. We, you know, we have to kind of straighten it out. That, there was a lot of that going on back then. Well, that's it. It's like if you're at a point where you see this drama happening because mm-hmm. of, you know, substances or, yeah. you know, pe- people's personalities change mm-hmm. and things happen. I mean, at what point do you say something or step in? I mean, mm-hmm. was there ever a point where you had to do that? Well, um yeah, I think there were a lot of times where you had to not step in, you know, and and like I said, for me I knew my place. Like I said, you know, at, by the time I got that gig, I had been through a lot in my life. And, I, and I, I can say that I had a pretty good filter going in. I don't know how or why, but for some reason I did. And I just kind of, I knew my place. And I, I, I knew when to speak up. I knew when, you know, shut up, when to stay out of it. And it was just a lot of that during that time and stuff. It's like, you know, and look, I made mistakes too. You know, sometimes an interviewer, you know, would be hanging out in a bar, just having, you know, we're drinking and talking and blah, blah, blah. And I might say something like, ah, fucking Axel was two hours late last night. Man, I wish he would have been on time. And And I was talking to an interviewer and they wrote that the next day. So, Mm. you know, I I fucked up too. And I learned my lesson. Oh my God, I got to shut up almost around everybody, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, filter once again, you know, what, what I'm thinking. And, uh, and, and, and it took a while, it took a while to kind of figure all that stuff out. Well, you know, sometimes, uh, when people are kind of, uh, let's say overindulging, mm-hmm. uh, they can get into addictions. I mean, you, oh, yeah. you've, you've seen that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is to cover up maybe a mood disorder or fear or something, mm-hmm. uh, do you feel that that has ever been something that you've experienced uh, with with yourself mm-hmm. or with with other people that you've played with? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot going on right now. You know, there's yeah. a lot of things out there, and we were talking about this, you know, before we we started. Of I I call I call it the fog. You know, it's like, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you know, whether you're you're abusing drugs or alcohol or whatever, and you think you have it under control, you always think you have it under control, but you're in the fog, you're in the fog of it. You're not thinking clearly, you're thinking in the fog of it. And it's so hard to know what the right thing is and to, and, and, and to do the right thing. That's why... You know, you need an advocate, you know, you need, uh, you know, everybody needs, you know, you know, a a friend or a wife or, you know, someone close to them. You know, you got to be a really, really strong person to be able to handle all that stuff on your own. Um, Just to sidetrack a little, but uh, I was in a really bad motorcycle accident, maybe about, I don't even remember, maybe 2010 or something, 11. I don't really remember what year it was. Okay. And uh, uh, I got a motorcycle crash. Uh, I got hit by a car 
and I broke both my legs and uh, and the guy took off just just <gasps> left me bleeding wow. in the street and my legs all backwards and motorcycle wrecked and everything but my wife was my advocate through it because you know when you're in the hospital you know doctors don't know everything right. you know that's why they always say you get a second or third opinion and yeah. stuff like that you know they you know imagine what they go through every day what they see and, and when they give you judgment anyway they made a misjudgment with my legs my one leg was broken so bad like i said it was turned around the other way i grabbed it i put it back and everything oh it was gosh. so bad that when i went to the hospital you know they checked everything out everything looked fine that they were really paying attention to this leg right right and there was a point when i had been there a couple of days and they said look why don't we stand up put some pressure on and see what you can do and when i stood up i fell down Oh. And I fell down. They go, what's going on? I go, something's wrong with my right leg. But because I had all the painkillers and all that stuff, I, I really couldn't feel it. Turned out my right leg was broken too. They just never checked it. Oh, my God. Now, what I'm talking about, I'm going a long way around it. But my wife was the one that was, she, you know, like I said, I was in a haze. And she's going, you know, I don't she, I don't think they're doing a good job. But you need to get out of here. Even though this is a hospital, you mm -hmm. know. She started making some calls about some people, you know, that were a little better at, at uh, you know, the surgeries and stuff. And trying to get me, you know, get me out of there to go to another place, right? If you don't have someone that's helping you, like I said, when you're there, you know, things can go the wrong way. A broken leg can turn into something bad. When mm -hmm. I went to the other hospital and checked in, he took a look at my leg and he goes, why are you in a cast? And I go, well, I don't know. They, my leg's broken. They put me in a cast. Mm -hmm. He tore the cast off. This is a specialist. And he tore the cast off and he goes, oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, my God. The whole time I'm thinking, I had a broken leg. People break their leg all the time. What's the big deal? Right. And he started doing like, like he had this concerned look on his face. My wife and I are looking at him going, what's going on? He goes, I'm just trying to save his leg right now. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you shouldn't have been in a cast. You know, your leg was swelling from the break and stuff. Your leg needed to breathe. He goes, you know, you had like a, a skin damage and stuff because of them putting me in a cast. Like the, the skin needed to breathe and everything. Yeah. Like a hospital screwed up, you mm -hmm. know, and everything. So, you know having somebody around like my wife you know that could you know you know uh, you know had the sense to take me out of there me i probably would just stay in that hospital and i might have lost my leg karen clark is a licensed marriage and family therapist uh but most notably a psychotherapist that specializes in dbt which stands for dialectical behavior therapy now gibby clark really mentioned the importance of good relationships and um, DBT is a therapy that can help improve your relationships, uh, especially the relationship with yourself. So the four areas that Karen is going to talk about in DBT is number one, mindfulness, number two, distress tolerance, number three, emotion regulation, number four, interpersonal effectiveness. And she's going to talk about this in simple terms so we could all kind of understand it and maybe even try it in our own lives. I know I'm going to try it in my life because a lot of it just is common sense and uh, it's just being very mindful of, uh, you know, how you think, how you act, uh, using your words. So um, let's start uh, by hearing Karen talk about the first skill, which is mindfulness. The skills modules uh, begin, there are four, as you said, they begin yeah. with mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we teach in terms of skills of mindfulness, we absolutely encourage meditation. 
And, you know, so the idea of sitting on a cushion and doing even three minutes or five minutes of meditation, bring mindfulness into your everyday activities, like learning to be more effective at observing our experience, Mm -hmm. describing it to ourselves, uh, and various other ones. But those two are really vital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And doing that on purpose, like learning to step back far enough to, to notice our experience and tell ourselves what it is. Okay, so being very conscious about what we're saying and what we're doing. And I think with meditation, sometimes it's it's a little confusing on, on how that helps us. But I know that, you know, as we go through our days and we have all of these thoughts in our head and all of the stresses and all the things that we have to do just floating in our head, that meditation allows us to quiet our minds, give our minds a break, and then also kind of listen for, uh, it kind of makes things clear because you start to listen to, you know, what you really should be focusing on, you know, away from those hundreds of thoughts that just keep swirling in our, in our mind. Right. Absolutely. Meditation, incidentally, there's lots of research on meditation, which is it actually changes the brain. I won't go into that, but mm-hmm. it actually biologically does change the brain when you get into a sustained meditation practice. Okay. That aside, the, the skills of DBT really are kind of oriented to what you're just saying, is learning to be able to notice, say, your emotional experience, uh-huh. which starts to point, say, towards triggers, which we can get to in a minute. And then put words on what your emotional experience is. The next, one of the next modules is emotion regulation. Mm-hmm. Be able to observe someone you're interacting with, for instance, mm-hmm. maybe more effectively. Notice if you are making up a story about what they're thinking. That happens a lot. It happens a lot. Where our perceptions get in the way and we start creating something in our in our heads that is not true but it might be based on our insecurities it might be based on our past and sometimes we don't even realize it and then all of a sudden we react to something that might not even be there right and one of the one of the things in dbt and the mindfulness is is learning to come at things with a non-judgmental stance which doesn't mean mm-hmm. never being judgmental mm-hmm. it means being able to stop and look at that and say wait a minute Because if I react as if my interpretation, my story about what you're thinking is true, Mm -hmm. I'm taking that, I'm taking that to be a fact. Mm -hmm. And then, yes, as you said, I'm going to react in some way that may be completely a potentially damaging, right? Be inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And then will have an impact on you that will then cause you to perhaps react in a way that will then have an impact on me. And then we're off and running. Yeah, and the other person is confused, right? Because you're coming at an angle that they don't even expect. And, you know, most people don't have an intention of of, of hurting somebody. But sometimes a past hurt can come back and then it's put on somebody else really unfairly. But, um, yeah, you you wouldn't want to do that, right, Uh, to someone who doesn't have that intention. Right. And in, in DBT, we're, we're, always, we're always talking about what is going to be the most effective, which includes ineffective in our relationship with other people, mm-hmm. effective with how we feel about ourselves, mm. uh, and effective with what it is we're trying to accomplish in any, in any given interaction and in our lives. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I react to you in a way that has nothing to... Uh, I've made up a story and I'm assuming that it's accurate, 
that's not going to be effective for our relationship. It's probably not going to get me whatever it is I might want mm -hmm. in the interaction we're having. And I may feel really bad about it later. Mm -hmm. I feel bad about myself mm -hmm. later. So that will then have an impact on my self-respect. Mm -hmm. And that um, story that you create in your mind, you know, is maybe somebody said something that does trigger a past memory and then you react and that reaction is kind of the opposite of being mindful it's like my being mindful really is a discipline because we have to stop ourselves at that moment and really say wait a second is that really what this person's intention is or is that really what they're saying or is it me just being triggered by something in the past right you know. absolutely or simply by something they may have said in an ineffective manner, like not so beautifully said, uh -huh. it somehow makes you think that they've said something mean. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? So we, so yeah. It, it may relate to the past, it may not. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. very often we talk about, a lot in DBT, we talk about validation and invalidation. Mm -hmm. And very often someone can say something to you or me yeah. that, I'm experiencing as invalidating, even though they had no intention to be invalidating at all. They were actually trying to be helpful. What's an example of that? An example might be if you're telling me just about this painful experience you had in a given day. And I start to give you advice immediately. Like, oh, well, you should go tell that person that said that to you, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And what you really want from me is just for to say, oh, oh my gosh, Mari, that just sounds awful and really hard and confusing. Mm -hmm. And instead, I'm telling you how to handle it. Mm -hmm. That can feel invalidating. Mm -hmm. That can feel to you like, I'm not really hearing you. Mm -hmm. I'm not really getting what your needs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, I used to. I, I used to be in a... a in the healthcare field and I was in a sales position and I had the fortunate um, experience of, of having to learn how to communicate. And so as I communicate, it's, it's got to be where it's, um, I don't have to think about it so much. So validating what somebody is saying is something that has become natural for me. Uh, but sometimes, yes, when I talk with other people that may not realize how they're communicating I can feel invalidated if I say something and they don't give a response or even a reply to what I've said they've just jumped in and they've tried to solve it or maybe they just transitioned into something completely different and you would Sam wait did you even hear what I said but they have they have heard what you said they just you know may not have the mindfulness or the communication skills to even realize what they're doing correct Absolutely. Yeah. And that we're, and we're all, we're all fallible. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just to give ourselves and other people right. a break and maybe not assuming that they're not listening uh, and, and, and just, I guess, clarifying. Absolutely. In right. a, in a, like a calm way without judging, like making a predetermined, you Assessment know. Assessment or right, ass right. assuming our opinion of something is accurate. Yeah. Yes. So, and, and, and as we speak about this, obviously, as you're indicating, it's not always easy to intervene on our emotions once we've been invalidated or triggered, right? So the skills of DBT uh, 
use mindfulness as the base for all of it and then proceed into how do we learn how to be more, to understand better our emotions, to, mm-hmm. to learn more about they ha- how they are hardwired into our survival mechanisms and our survival brain, mm-hmm. um, how to better navigate them, how to begin to change an emotion that you want to change mm-hmm. in order to be more effective in the interaction that you're in. So th- that's the emotion regulation module. Oh, in part two, we're going to hear more from Karen Clark about DBT, uh, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. And she's going to um, tell us something about how to improve our communication with others using something called interpersonal effectiveness. Uh, So stay tuned for that. She's also going to talk about something called radical acceptance. And that's kind of exciting to know about. Um, We also have a part two of Gilby Clark's interview where he shares a story about losing a close friend to alcohol abuse and also why it's so difficult for men to ask for help. So thank you so much to Gilby Clark and to Karen Clark for being on the Check Your Head podcast. Uh, For more information on Gilby Clark, his new album and tour dates, visit gilbyclark.com. And for psychotherapist Karen Clark, uh, visit dbtcenteroc.com to learn more about DBT and to contact Karen Clark. You can also find uh, free and low-cost mental help uh, on our website, checkyourheadpodcast.com, and that's mental help that you can find locally and nationwide right at your fingertips. We try to be like a one-stop shop for mental help. So until next time, be brave, ask for help, and be persistent in finding the mental help that you need. Check Your Head is kindly supported by Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, Lemon Tree Studios in Los Angeles, and other kind donors and sponsors. Visit checkyourheadpodcast.com where you'll find more resources for mental help. And please subscribe to our podcast, especially on our Patreon page, uh, where we've got all kinds of gifts and goodies for you. Also, find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram.